just like that, we're back. Another edition of the Late Kick Extra podcast, Thursday, July 15th, year of our Lord, 2021. I cannot believe how loaded the mailbag is. Our numbers, as I have told you, are through the roof. Well, now the mailbag volume's through the roof, too. I'm looking at our sheet in front of me. To be honest with you, I have no clue how we're going to get through all this, but we're going to try. I'm going to do the same format I did the other day, which I got good feedback on, and that is dive right into a question and then mix up the housekeeping notes throughout. So Gage is going to start us off today. He says, how would you feel about getting rid of preseason rankings? Wait until, say, week six or seven or eight, and then rank the teams based on what they've done to that point. Would this negate overrated wins, improve midseason talking points, etc.? What are your thoughts? Well, Gage, we already do that. You may say, no, that's not true. I see preseason rankings all over the place. They don't matter, though. They, they mean what you let them mean. And what I mean by that is our postseason formula is different now. It used to be that AP decided the national championship. I mean, Associated Press voters decided, and so it very much mattered what preseason rankings were. Now, it's the playoff committee. Now, if you want to argue with me, yeah, but all the preseason and early season narratives and talking points impact their thinking, that's a separate discussion. You may very well be right there. But what I'm saying is technically what ESPN.com says or what 247sports.com says in week two or week four it technically has no bearing. So my whole take on this has always been, what? how do you stop preseason rankings? What is the official body out there that ranks college football? Are we talking about the AP? Because we got a million different subsets and we got a million different websites out there and Twitter accounts that are going to do it regardless. So here's the way to handle this. Each individual listening, if you're driving around in Frankfort, Kentucky this morning or Tallahassee, Florida, you just decide for yourself what it means. If you highly value then you just check out every set of rankings you can get your hands on. If you don't, then ignore them totally. But I think that right now you got the happy medium. I would guess, I mean, for those of you who don't care about the rankings, good. That's not what the actual postseason apparatus is tied to. It's tied to a committee, and that committee does not release its first batch of rankings until two-thirds of the way through the season. And if you are into rankings, good. The media subculture out there can still give you everything you want. And hey, if they don't, then you can make up your own set of rankings. So Gage, I don't think you can outlaw it even if you wanted to. I take them for what they are. If you've noticed, and many of you have, the way I handle my show, the way I stack our shows, I don't do a whole lot of it. I'm I'm going to, at some point in August, give you my preseason top 10, but I just don't value it all that much. You You will definitely not see me releasing version one, version two, version three of my preseason rankings. I don't get into that. There's a market for it. I don't get into it. I just think we can be more substantive. And I don't think there's nearly as much skill in preseason predictions along those lines as people tend to think. Now, I will give you guys our power ratings, but that's what they are. They're ratings. They're not rankings based on how I think someone's record's going to turn out. It's totally. It's a Vegas concept instead of a media-based concept, which I tend to lean towards. Wyatt, next up. Wyatt says, we're always obsessed with star rankings in recruiting. Well, you're a part of 24-7. Could you actually tell us how star rankings are given out? It's a good question. I was fascinated by this. I was a member of 24-7 long before I worked here. I used to wonder the same thing. I used to wonder what happened behind that curtain. So when I got here, even though I'm not on the recruiting council, I asked, hey, can I sit in on those meetings sometimes? Sometimes they're on the phone. If you're in the office, they're just in the office. And I was told, yeah, go ahead. So I've sat in on them. I've listened to the back and forth. And what's happening here is you've got an entire network. And when I say network, I mean national all over the place, a network physically of human beings that are responsible for certain geographical regions of the country. 
and they're responsible for knowing the players in that region, scouting the players in that region. It's not just one person per region. It's a whole lot of guys. And then you have some national types that sort of oversee the entire apparatus. You got to be really, really in touch with the high school coaching scene. You've got to have really good contacts inside college football departments, especially scouting departments, so you can acquire as much feedback on top of your own eyeballs looking at that raw game film as possible. So the approach is simple. You have an entire committee and you get as many eyes on kids as early in their careers as you can. And you start to compile a database of everything from metrics to just overall height, weight, 40 times, shuttle times, everything you would get in a camp setting. And you want to get them in multiple camp settings, but then you also get to see them do individual repetitions in camp settings. You get to track their progress, 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade, you just you're compiling a database for each kid. What you don't want is pull up a kid when he's a senior about to commit and you see that you got two bullet points. You want an entire treasure trove of information there and all that is bleeding into that rankings council meeting with each other at least once a week, so several times a month and they are debating back and forth. I mean they're hammering out consistently. They're hammering out that top 247 and beyond, but they're really hammering out that top 247 And why is this kid here? Why is this kid not ahead of that kid? I've seen both these kids compete on the same field at the same time. I feel better about this. The point is, it's a lot of debate and you have to get an agreed upon, I would say consensus. You're never going to get unanimous consent on anything rankings related. But once you're happy with it as a council, then you put that product out and we have periodic rankings updates. I've seen some of the allegations back before I worked here. Maybe I even participated in them. I don't anymore. Some of those allegations would be, well, you move these kids up because they're signing with that particular class. And that particular class has a website on this network that has a disproportionate membership base. I have heard it before. Uh, None of that stuff is really happening. They are so in the weeds when they're talking about this stuff. The the concept of, well, you know, at the end of the day, we got him 56th right now, but he's going to commit to Ohio State. So that's a big market for us. Let's bump him up to number 32. I mean, you know, what, what will we hurt? Who would notice? That's not the way they're doing that. It never is the way they're doing that. If they do it, then it's got to be in a double secret, double behind closed doors meeting that they hold after the original meeting that I'm not privy to. So my point is, there's a lot of thoroughness. It's not an exact science. That's why the process is so thorough. And there are always new ideas. There are new names always being floated. You're always trying to grow and evolve your network of analysts and scouts. And I think we've got a really, really good crew here. It's a really deep and sort of eclectic group that you can trust across the nation. It's not all these guys who grew up in one state or something like that. And then all of a sudden you say, all right, I know you grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina, but I need you to go cover the West Coast. No, we've got West Coast folks covering the West Coast. We've got folks in Texas covering Texas, Southeast covering Southeast, etc. So it's a very thorough process. When you see a star ranking, even though you may disagree with it, I can just assure you, Wyatt, there's been a whole lot of due diligence put into it on the rankings council. And Caitlin up next, (laughs) listen to this question. Caitlin said, What's the deal with Outer Banks? Is that really your show? Here's a story for you. Some of you know what Outer Banks is. It's not just the region off the coast of the Carolinas. It is that. But Outer Banks is a show on Netflix. Okay, I had never watched it until recently. Outer Banks was created by a guy named Josh Pate. I've never met him. I don't know much about him. 
throughout our lives. I'm sure one of us has been brought up to the other, probably him to me more than me to him, because we have the same name, and it's not a very common name from what I can tell. Well, here's what happened. When that show, which is only one season in, started blowing up on Netflix, it turned out that the Josh Pate who created the show does not have a Twitter account. Well, yours truly does. And guess what fans of the show decided? They decided I was him. It didn't matter that in my bio, it says I cover college football. They didn't dig that deep. They just assumed I was him or maybe I was moonlighting as an executive producer for Netflix shows on top of my college football day job. Whomst among us hasn't. So I digress. They start filling my inbox with plot points and ideas and storyline concepts and which characters should become romantically involved with other characters. And it was by the dozens and dozens. This happens every week for me. I've never talked about it, but this happens every week for me. It's just the life my parents chose for me when they named me what they named me. Well, I'd never seen the show until recently. So I came home last week or two weeks ago. I came home to Georgia and I said, I was scrolling through Netflix. I said, you know what? Outer Banks. I've had a couple of people recommend it. I'm going to watch this show so I can equip myself so that when these people come at me for season two, which it said was going to start in late July, I'm just going to go back and forth with them. I'm going to play along. So I watched the show. Now, I never assumed I'd like it, but then I got about halfway into the first episode and realized, oh, I actually love this show. So I watched the whole thing. Well, then it got really embarrassing because then not only do I go back in all those old DMs and start trying to respond to people, I started corresponding with them. And now... I don't know how to get out because I am knee deep in multiple Twitter and Instagram DM conversations about what should happen between Kiara and Pogue in season two. And it makes sense to you if you've watched the show. If you haven't, it doesn't. I um, I need help. That's what I'm saying to you. I need help. And that's where I'll leave it. Thank you, Caitlin. No, it's not my show, but yes, it kind of is my show. Next up, we all know Bama has the greatest current dynasty, but who has the potential to do something like that in the future? That's from Maurice, a.k.a. Sammy, a.k.a. Mudcat. Interesting. Very. It sounds like, a, it sounds like a full life has been lived by Maurice, a.k.a. Sammy, a.k.a. Mudcat. It's almost like I grew up with that guy. So, um, yeah, it's Bama currently. Well, it's got to be Ohio State. You've heard how I talk about them, and the pushback I'll get is Clemson. It's not like Clemson is a wrong answer. In fact, you could argue if Clemson is the answer, they've already started the run. It's funny how these things work in real time. If you were to look back on... Uh, Bear Bryant's dynasty at Alabama. You just think from beginning to end, it's a dynasty. There were periods where they had dips. I mean, the late 60s were not good at all. They were not kind at all to Alabama, but no one ever remembers that because we remember he resurrected the program and they went on to be the standard bearer in the 70s, won like two or three more titles. But my point is with Clemson, so they win the title in 16, they win it in 18, and yet there's some doubt out there about them right now. For what? For what? Some people think I doubt them. I don't doubt them at all. I don't know that people understand how to properly assignate the label hater and homer these days. So I've just made a lot of points. Let me address them one by one. Clemson's not in any rut. What are we talking about right now? They were in the playoff last year. They were in the playoff two years ago. They were in the national championship game two years ago. They went up against some really good teams. But my point is, if we go, let's say, another five years and Clemson wins a title this year and a title in 2024, uh, that's a dynasty, man. And it didn't start in 2021 if they win it this year. We will view that dynasty as having started in 2016. And then you had a title in 2018. And then 2021 and 2024, that's four titles in a decade. Yeah, I'd call that a dynasty. Rattling off about one every other year, that's a dynasty. My point is, if I answer Clemson, that means we're already in the middle of it. If I answer Ohio State, it hasn't begun yet. And so he's asking, Maurice is asking, who could be the next one? 
Well, I'm going to say it's Ohio State. And by saying that, I'm admitting it hasn't started yet. Now, it's my belief you cannot have two dynasties in the sport running counter to each other. Because to be clear here, the question was not who can ascend to being a really good program. He's asking me flat out which program, if any, has the capability of being the next true dynasty in college football. You don't see congruent dynasties. There's only room for one at that kind of table. And so by the very nature of the question, don't we have to get Alabama out of the way? And don't we have to have someone supplant them? So it's my feel, you know how high I am on Ryan Day. It's my feel that if there is an answer to this question, that's who it'll be. It'll be Ryan Day in Ohio State. If it's not them, the only other reasonable answer there is, is Dabo Swinney and Clemson. And if that's the answer, it already begun and maybe, or began, and maybe down the road we're looking back and we tell ourselves 30 years from now that there was some overlap. It turns out the latter portion of the Alabama dynasty overlapped the very beginning stages of the Clemson dynasty. And then you just coronate Dabo Swinney all the more because he won not one, but two titles during Bama's reign. And he beat Alabama to win those titles. Now that's how you become one of the greatest of all time. Tell that story. You can't tell that story right now because we don't know the full context down the road. We will. Next up is Chip. Chip said, a good buddy of mine and I were talking football last night, and he said, we should be paying attention to SMU, not because of anything positive, but because they've gotten some five and four star kids, and he believes they're allowing the old SMU playbook of paying players. I countered that with NIL, you'll start to see really talented kids go to smaller schools due to the fact that NIL will offer them opportunities to market themselves. What do you think about this? Well, this is what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, probably closer to a month ago at this point, with what NIL and, make no mistake, the expanded playoff is going to do. Now, the expanded playoff hasn't happened yet, so this is future tense on that. But the NIL deal is absolutely correct. First off, let me assure you, no one is executing the former SMU playbook anymore, including SMU. No one's doing that nor do you have to. Now, if you want to know what that means, one of the best ESPN 30 for 30s ever made was Pony Excess. That is great. It's long. It's like two hours, but they needed it to tell the whole story. So many classic lines. Ron Meyer. We run basically an honest program. Well, we called it the Trans A&M. Those are a couple of lines that are out of context unless you've seen that special before. Pony Excess, 30 for 30, go watch it. Because we got a lot of college-age kids and high school kids who listen to the podcast and watch the show that do not know that story. You may not even know SMU was dealt the death penalty at one point, but if you do know that, you may not know the whole story. I mean, I was barely alive. I wasn't alive when it happened. However, I love history. So, man, I've, I've bathed in that stuff. If you have not seen it, do yourself a favor. Carve out two hours. Go find Pony Excess, some of the best work ESPN's ever done. I'll give credit where it's due. And so that's not happening. We do not have the NCAA arriving on a gloomy winter morning to hand out the death penalty in front of a packed press conference in Dallas, Texas. Here's what's going to happen. I'm looking at their recruiting class right now. They got a couple of four-star kids from Garland, Texas. That is the perfect case study for what this is going to be able to do. You're going to be able to, at any given point, land a couple of those guys that otherwise probably go to bigger schools because you're in a major market, you can offer them things they otherwise thought they previously needed to go to bigger schools to accomplish. And that's how you do it. That's why, though, to circle kind of back to what I originally said, that's why the expanded playoff is going to be so important, along with NIL. And coaches and agents know it. I want you guys to pay close attention. If you want to be ahead of the curve on this, pay close attention to how coveted jobs like SMU, Central Florida, Cincinnati, Memphis, Memphis, 
Um, Louisiana Lafayette, even though it's in a different conference, that's where Billy Napier is. Pay attention to how coveted these jobs are seeming. We got coaches turning down Power 5 offers to stay at some of the big AAC or in ULL's case, the Sun Belt, to stay at some of these higher level G5 outposts. The reason they're doing it is because they know those jobs and the value of those jobs is rapidly ascending. So NIL is going to do a world of good for them. But then think about NIL if it's like a train car and then you couple it to the expanded playoff. And it guarantees at least one G5 team a seat at the playoff table every year. But it also reworks the TV deal where you get more TV money infused into your conference. So we don't know how much more money we're going to have as a conference, but we do know we're going to have a lot more. And all that's standing in the way, as I've told you guys before, all that has ever been standing in the way of a conference like the AAC from being competitive right there in line with the Power Five has been the gap in finance. They just don't have as much money. Uh, if you don't have as much money, you can't do as many nice things. Well, then you get more money. Well, here's the, here's the thing. Once they get more money, it's going to have a really disproportionately positive impact on their conference. Why is that? Well, the AAC already has a ton of advantages that money is going to allow them to tap into. The AAC, and I'm going to include Louisiana here, even though they're in the Sun Belt, because they fit the description as a program. So I'm just going to pretend like they're in the AAC for a second. Think about having teams in Houston, in Dallas, in Memphis, in Tampa, in Orlando, in Cincinnati. You got Louisiana down in Lafayette. So you've got the state of Louisiana really is how I would phrase that. They've got a huge advantage. They're around talent. There's talent all around those programs. They just haven't been able to keep them home. Kids have left home to go to Power 5 places that they really aren't crazy about going to because they know that's where they have to go to get the exposure and the opportunity and to maximize their development. You get more money pumped into your product, you can invest in football more. If you invest in football more, you can attract kids to stay at home. You don't even have to be equal to some of your Power 5 brethren that are a 1,000 miles away. You just have to be remotely comparable. Those kids are looking for reasons to stay home. If I grow up in Grapevine, Texas... My best Power 5 offer is, let's say, in Iowa or Minnesota, and all of a sudden SMU offers me, and I can make NIL money in Dallas, and I can be on TV 11 times a year in Dallas, and I got a legitimate shot at the playoff in Dallas. I'm not leaving Dallas. I would have in 1995, 2005, or even 2015. I'm not leaving now. So that's exactly what's happening. And that's why these coaches are trying to lock down these G5 jobs. You see how quick Gus Malzahn hopped out of his little quasi-retirement when he got fired from Auburn to go right down to Central Florida, that was a huge break for him. The next thing to watch is Houston. Watch how Dana Holgerson operates there. And if he can't get that program on track consistently, Houston's going to be the next most high-profile in-demand job that you're not hearing a lot about right now because it's not open. Let's hop over to Brendan's question next. He said, I've heard you bring up college football preview magazines multiple times. I've never actually looked at one myself. Do you like preview magazines for what they are? Is there a particular one you favor and look forward to reading? I imagine someone in your position would have more use for them compared to fans, not in media. I do look at them. I do not value them nearly as much as some other people, even in our industry do, which is fine. There's not like a right or wrong way to do that. I use them as a resource. So I'll always have them. Phil Steele has the best magazine because I think he's got the most information in his magazine. 
and I use it as a resource. I wear out those pages. By the end of the year, it looks like tornado debris. So yes, I absolutely use it. But I would also encourage you to explore some of the digital products out there. I think, for example, Brett over at Pick 6 Previews, I think actually as I'm recording, I think he's releasing his uh, season preview tomorrow. That's an excellent resource. I mean, it's as jam-packed with information. In fact, analytically more packed with information and more advanced metric type information than any of the preview magazines out there. So I would encourage you, yeah, buy the magazines. It's very good for college football. Buy all of them. I end up, well, we get all of them shipped to us, but previously I used to buy all of them. And then you decide how much you want to invest in what you're reading there. Do you use it as a resource? Do you just blindly buy everything that's written there? At the end of the day, does it matter? The games are going to be played anyway. So it's entertainment, if nothing else. But also, I would encourage you, check out the digital assets because a lot of those are packed with information. And since they release digitally, they can wait until the last minute, which means they have all the right transfers, all the right portal updates, all the right uh, just roster information in general, any late staff moves. So those are very up to date. So I would I would get as much information in the preseason as you can. And then, of course, do your own homework. I'll tell you on my end with Late Kick, we do what are called our grand season previews and we hit a ton of teams. And I'll do those throughout August, essentially. And those are packed. I mean, those are videos that will also be available in audio form. But those are very, very packed with information. I go a lot of different angles. Like if I'm doing, let's say, the Tennessee Grand Season Preview today, I do about four or five different kind of features that are unique to Late Kick, the way we've slowly compiled our methodology over the years. So those will be coming up. So yeah, check everything out. But last thing I'll say is make sure when December comes, you flip back through those pages. That's how you find out who's credible. And don't just go to who nailed the right bowl predictions, but check out how someone felt about a team and then juxtapose it to how that team in that season ended up playing out. Because you could be absolutely right about a team and they get derailed due to injury. And of course, your prediction for their record goes wrong. Well, that doesn't mean you were wrong. It just means several of the factors outside anyone's ability to predict happened. So don't always go off the prediction, just the raw prediction. Was it right or wrong? Check out what the overall theme and feel for the teams were. Was the information on point? That's what I like, and that's what I'm looking at. Jake is up next. I'm doing some season simulations for all 130 FBS teams to prepare for the season. Currently, I just give three points to every home team since that is traditionally what is used for home field advantage. But I've been thinking about how there might be an added advantage this year for home teams. So I'm going to do a separate simulation where each home team has plus four. Two questions. One, is that logical? And two, would you be interested in the results? Well, yes, Jake, I'd be interested in the results. So you can DM me those or email me those at LateKickJosh on Twitter and Instagram. I forgot to tell you this the last week. This is how you get in touch with me. Please follow me and how you can submit a question at Late Kick Josh, Instagram and Twitter. And you can also email me, joshpate706 at gmail.com. So yeah, Jake, hit me with that. And also, I strongly believe home field advantage will be undervalued early in the season. It will not be normal. It may fade back into normal in the back half of the season. But home field advantage will disproportionately affect games early in the season. I have no doubt about that. You're going to have, in some cases, teams with 30 to 40% of their roster having never played in a full road stadium environment. Think about North Carolina, first week of the season, going on the road on a Friday night to Blacksburg, Virginia. Lane Stadium, packed for the first time in two years against Virginia Tech. That's a game they're going to be favored to win. 
That's a game everyone's going to expect them to win. And it's a game because of environment alone. Independent of what Virginia Tech team shows up, it's going to be very difficult to go in there and win. So I absolutely agree with that approach. But I, you got to calibrate it. So I never believed in going blanket plus three. In the NFL, I do. In college, my own system and who I partner with when we do Ramen Noodle Express, oh, there's those words, when we do our own game simulations, we have a unique proprietary home field baked in for every environment and every situation. So not even every stadium receives the same home field advantage number for every game across the season. LSU, if they're playing Troy at 2 o'clock in the afternoon versus Alabama at night, I'm giving them a different home field advantage baked into the line. That's what I'm talking about. So I I would really dive deep on that, and I do it on a week-by-week basis. But there will be no research that comes out in time to find out if you're right or wrong in real time. It'll be too anecdotal in nature. You're going to have to have good instinct on that. Otherwise, I would leave it alone, or for the sake of simplicity, I would just do a simple plus three or plus three and a half or plus three and three quarter if you want to. I've realized I've gotten like seven questions deep and I have not done any housekeeping. So as usual, here's just the requisite thank you, because our numbers, even from last podcast, have gone up again. So the numbers are exploding, and I really start to feel that if I can stay out of prison, we're going to explode the show this fall. That's really the only key. Stay healthy, stay out of prison, not necessarily in that order, and we can blow the show up this fall. So a couple of weeks ago, you guys heard me put out a little call. It was on the live version, Late Kick Live. And I said, if anyone out there is in a position with a regional or national type of company where you want to advertise, I'm not guaranteeing we're even going to do it because we don't have to do it. But if there are some brands out there I'd like to partner with and we can make the price points work, hit me up. We'll see what we can work out. Well, you guys did immediately. I mean, immediately. And we got some big names that we're talking to right now that I, I would be very proud to partner with. But I'll also tell you this. we If you're in the finance world, this will make sense. If not, it'll be over in two seconds. Q3 is upon us. And a lot of people have already done their ad spending for quarter three. Q4, we got that on lock. But if anyone has some Q3 discretionary ad spending, they can still do and we can make it work. You know, we're looking... Well, you know what? We're looking for you. We'll just decide if it's a good partnership. There are brands I'll partner with. There are ones I won't partner with. I just, I have to sign off on it. It's got to be something I believe in. It's, I'm not going to endorse anything I don't believe in. There are several things as a result I would not endorse if you paid me a trillion dollars. I would not put it on the show. But if it's the right thing for our audience and it's something I believe in, we'll make it happen. Uh, but I'm saying all that to say this, hurry because we don't have a lot of time and we don't have a lot of shelf life and inventory left. It's gone a little bit smoother than I thought it would. I was always told the sales thing's supposed to be hard and it turns out it's, uh, it's not. If you have a product, let's say that if you have a good product, it's not. So fortunately you guys have built this show into such a good product that also in our audience are people in positions to buy their way into the product and it's just one big happy family and it helps us keep the show free. So everyone wins. Did you notice? It's not like middle school. There are no losers in this equation. It's a wonderful, wonderful time. And I don't even think we've started to sing yet because we have not had a full season here that was COVID-free and that was election-free. So we got a huge platform this fall and we're going to blow it up. And I don't doubt that one bit. I just want to maximize the potential, squeeze every ounce of juice out. And we're in the process of doing that. And we got more announcements coming up that I can't tell you quite yet. But if you've been paying attention to my Instagram, especially the story, 
you probably know what I'm talking about. So stay tuned, dot, dot, dot. And as usual, let's make sure we get as many people on board as possible. All right, back to the questions. Kyle, finally, a question on Iowa State. Kyle said, coaches always say they think they signed a great recruiting class, but I think for most people, that's just lip service. But when Matt Campbell at Iowa State says it, I think he means it, despite signing relatively low-ranking classes in the 45 to 60 range. Well, my question is, do you believe he really thinks he's getting guys that need to be developed a lot? Or do you think he genuinely believes he's getting a really great class that isn't just ranked that high by the services? All right, that was the first part of Kyle's question. I'll hit this quick. I believe based on his criteria, he fully believes he's getting great classes. The thing about Iowa State and the thing about Matt Campbell is he has no illusion about where he's at and what they're capable of. He doesn't even pretend they're about to go heads up against Ohio State or Oklahoma for kids. They don't even pursue them. They know what kind of kid they can get in there, but they also have ultra high confidence in their process. They know as a result, because of the kind of athlete they're going to get, they're not going to start a ton of true freshmen, but they're not going to have to because they build and solidify their depth chart to where they never take crushing blows. I mean, you never open up a preview magazine and see that they lost three guys off this position unit. They will be totally incapable of replacing them. No, they're confident and they rarely replace outgoing starters with true freshmen. But what he, being Matt Campbell, he is looking at, he's saying, based on what we want, we're getting the players that we require. Chip Kelly kind of was the same way at Oregon in that in the early portion of his tenure there, he was not going against USC for all the five-star talent. What he did was he said, let's be real, we're at Oregon, which at the time was not a place that you were going to recruit nationally, heads up with the powerhouse programs for elite athletes with. Nowadays, it's kind of a different story. But back then, Chip Kelly said, we can either do one of two things. We can either play the same style of football they do, and they're going to beat us with superior athletes. We can try and recruit against them for the same athletes, and they'll beat us because they have a 30-year head start and more resources than we do. Or we can implement a system that makes, for our purposes, a three-star kid a five-star kid. Since we're doing something different, then he fits us perfectly. Whereas Southern Cal may look at him and say, we don't even have room for him. And they did that. Iowa State's doing the same thing. The only difference is they're not doing it with some radical offense, the likes of which no one has seen. They're just doing it with elbow grease. There's no big secret formula, kind of like we talked about the other day. It's just stacking good days on top of each other and adhering very rigidly to a process, not bending it for anyone, which leads me to the second part of this question uh, that Kyle asked. He said, Matt Campbell also essentially dismissed NIL at Big 12 Media Days. He said it had very little to no change on their program. Do you think this will come back to hurt him in future recruiting classes and alter the trajectory of the program? I don't, Kyle, only because I don't think it factors into what they... I think he's being honest, is what I believe. I think he is being honest and saying... The kind of kid that's going to be attracted to our program will not be turned off because we don't have a ton of NIL opportunity. I think that's what he's saying. He is openly seeding the fact that the guys who can expertly market themselves and leverage their huge social followings and they can get X number of dollars endorsing products per year and they can command all this attention on the NIL market. He's telling you that's probably not an Iowa State guy anyway. It's just not the kind of kid that we've recruited. And that's fine. Because we can win with the kind of kids we do recruit. And those kinds of kids probably don't carry a lot of extra baggage, let's say, of needing this and that regarding NIL. I don't know how that's going to turn out for him. And the bigger question would be, how does that turn out if he goes to another program? 
if he were to go to Notre Dame or Michigan or something like that, I wonder if he'd have that stance. I wonder this about Brian Harson at Auburn. I was talking to someone at Auburn the other day, and you know they kind of shrugged their shoulders. I said, I have not heard a lot out of there about NIL. Everyone else around you in the SEC is touting these big NIL projects and these big partnerships, and Auburn's not really doing any of that. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Brian Harson kind of comes from the same school of philosophy. I doubt that he wants much to do with it. Well, how are you going to survive in the SEC and not have much to do with NIL? That was my open-ended question. It doesn't have to be an indictment on the future of the program. I'm just very curious, like you are, Kyle, how that's going to go. Uh, One more from Nolan here that kind of has to do with Media Day. He said, Chris Kleiman, who is the Kansas State head coach, was asked a question at Media Days, and his response was definitely one geared towards any player listening. However, I wanted your take, which, of course, I will be happy to do when we come back. So Nolan continues, he said, Chris Kleiman said that Manhattan, Kansas, where Kansas State is located, was a gold mine for NIL due to the value the community places on K-State athletics. On a national scale, would you say that schools in towns like Manhattan or Lubbock could have their athletes benefit more due to just how important their program is as compared to a player that goes to USC or Minnesota, which are in larger markets and have more distractions from the university? So this could go a couple of ways. It all depends on how woven into the fabric of the community or the market the university is. So what I mean, because that sounds arbitrary, what I mean is this. Every market is unique. The Manhattan, Kansas market and the Los Angeles, California market, they're very unique. Lubbock, Texas and Dallas, Texas, two different worlds in the same state. But here's what's interesting. If I'm going to Texas Tech or I'm going to USC, I have opportunity at both. If you have ever run a brand or a company, and there is a brand associated with a company, you've got to get rub in your market. I mean, if you're trying to sell it, let's say you're a regional or even a local brand, you got to have rub in your market. So let's say you're a big car dealership. You're the biggest car dealership in your market. Well, if you're in Los Angeles, California, you could thrive without ever touching USC Athletics. Because there are one trillion different media opportunities and all kind of different ways to get your name and your brand in front of the however many million people live in that market besides USC football. It would help. USC football would help, but you don't have to touch USC. You cannot thrive in Lubbock, Texas without being associated with Texas Tech Athletics. You certainly cannot thrive in Manhattan, Kansas without working in lockstep conjunction from a marketing aspect with Kansas State University. So you think to yourself, if I'm a prospective athlete, oh, there's a lot more money for me to be made at USC than there is Kansas State. That's true if everyone has their act together at USC, if they've done the legwork, or you know, since the school's technically not supposed to be involved, if someone representing you has done the legwork, and if enough brands in and around Southern California realize They got to get their rub, and it makes sense financially for them to get their rub by associating with USC. But there's a lot of guesswork in that, and that you would have to execute that. Whereas if you're going to Kansas State, uh, there is no guesswork there. You can guarantee yourself there are going to be huge businesses with huge opportunity for you because they have to rub up against Kansas State football. Now, the question becomes, how many kids are really choosing between Kansas State and USC? How many kids are choosing between Texas Tech and Texas? This is just not a battle that goes on very often. And so I don't, what I'm saying is there's going to be opportunity for high name athletes because they're choosing amongst the best of the best in the biggest markets, but also 
there are going to be opportunities for guys who previously you never would have identified. I mean, a three-star kid who is choosing, let's say, between Texas Tech and Kansas State could have a win-win opportunity because those markets have in them the built-in advantage for the athlete that local business has to invest in the athletic program or they completely drown. Because that is the biggest billboard in the market, is the athletic program. We continue to roll merrily along. Rocco up next. You often talk about how Ryan Day and Nick Saban focus on process and not external factors like disrespect to motivate a team. Well, do you think Kirby Smart is in the disrespect camp or the process camp? I don't have a good read on it, but coach and player press conferences are something I don't spend much time watching. Well, Rocco, the first thing I wanted to do is I want to clarify. When I say they don't use disrespect as motivation, I don't mean they don't ever mention disrespect. I don't mean that they never put something on the wall in the locker room or the weight room. I don't mean they never loop a previous year's game in front of the weight racks. I know they do that sort of thing. If someone in the opposing locker room says something on a Tuesday that could catch your guy's ears, it's going to make their way to them via the strength and conditioning coach or their position coach. I'm not saying they don't do that. What I said, to be very clear, is they don't build their program's ethos and they don't build their motivation apparatus on a foundation of disrespect. In other words, they do not build their program to where they rely on something externally to motivate with them. They know that the true long-term sustainable fuel source is within. You don't count on other people to doubt you because once that runs out, your fuel source runs out. So that's what I was saying. It's a more overarching sort of macro instead of a micro. Now, as for your question there, I don't think Kirby Smart has that fully figured out. It's one of the many challenges for a younger head coach is to figure that out. Kirby Smart himself, I have no doubt, knows how to motivate. Kirby Smart's not a guy when he wakes up in the morning that has any trouble getting out of bed and needs to you know, look at the screen on his iPhone where he has plastered a quote of someone disrespecting him, and that's what motivates him. Kirby Smart himself doesn't need that. The challenge is not in motivating yourself. The challenge is in finding a way to put what's in you in your entire program. And that's where I think Kirby Smart and a lot of young guys, a lot of younger coaches probably struggle because some of the older ones don't get it figured out. You see Kirby Smart try it. I mean, when he keeps talking about chopping wood, chopping wood, chopping wood, well, that is directly tied to the mentality I'm talking about. Process, 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 independent of what's going on outside our bubble, we control inside our bubble. And if we take care of what's happening in here, then we're going to recruit athletes to the level that won't matter who's out there. We're capable of beating anyone if we operate at maximum performance level. Well, he hasn't gotten there yet. That's not a knock. That's realistic. Uh, It's hard to be there when you're only five or six years in as a head coach. And uh, that's why I respect Ryan Day so much. I mean, that's why I respect Dabo so much. They did not. Lincoln Riley's the same way. Kirby's the same way. These are not guys that started at Tulsa. These are not guys that started at Akron. I mean, these are guys that have their first opportunity being on one of the biggest stages in the sport. There are, there are no shortcuts, though, to learning these lessons. Tyler is last up. He said, how would you define success for my Gamecocks under Shane Beamer over the next five years? I don't think a college football playoff appearance or SEC championship are in the cards, so I'm trying to determine what we should be aiming for. Success to me for South Carolina would be getting the roster situated, and that's in the immediacy. I would have a recruiting plan in place, or I would want to see a recruiting plan in place that consistently allows us to pull one or two upsets a year on the trail that we shouldn't, in conjunction with our overall level of recruiting floating somewhere in the 10 to 20 range which makes us competitive every year and puts us 
in any two to three year period in position to build to a team that's capable of beating Georgia, capable of beating Florida. This again is in any given year. See, I wouldn't sell yourself short, Tyler. I wouldn't say we can never win the SEC. I wouldn't say that only because if you would have said that about Clemson, you would have been wrong. I'll grant you they're in a different conference, but everything else resource wise, geographically, like these places are not all that different. I know you guys don't want to hear that, but those places are not all that different. My point is if Clemson was able to rise, South Carolina theoretically is able to rise. It's a multi-year deal though. And so the baby steps first are to be able to, when someone in, let's say Tucson, Arizona, Ask someone else on a street corner, hey, what is South Carolina football? They have an immediate answer. There's something identifiable, uniquely so, about South Carolina that college football fans know coast to coast. Because if the fans know it, the players know it. If the players know it, they're more liable to commit there. The next thing they need to do is they need to have a solid NIL plan. That could be the tiebreaker on some of these things. And the third thing is Shane Beamer has to have been the right hire. Now, we don't know, obviously, because he hasn't coached a game. And we also can't debate it because it's already happened. But if he is a guy, the culture fit we always talk about, if he's a guy that the community and other coaches start buying into, then that means it becomes a destination as opposed to a backup option, which professionally some people would probably view South Carolina as. And all of a sudden, South Carolina feels the same as North Carolina does right now. Only recently have we started to talk about North Carolina as being as desirable a location as it is under Mac Brown. Well, they don't have the trademark or the patent on that approach. You kind of just follow the North Carolina model. That's probably the easier way to say it, Tyler. Follow the North Carolina model. But I wouldn't sell myself short. I wouldn't talk about what is or isn't possible. I just focus on the process of getting it done and making sure the culture's in place, which is going to be the most important word around any program. But if Shane Beamer's the man, if he ends up being the man there, he's not going anywhere first off. So you'll have him locked down forever. And secondly, if he is the man... I don't know what the limit is for South Carolina. I mean, it's not like they're coaching out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. They're they're tied to this region just like everyone else. And recruits know that they exist. They just don't view them as a destination like they may in the future if some of these things start falling into place. All right, I have to get this sent off. we got Late Kick Live coming up tonight. Now, I'm down in Georgia for another funeral, so I'll be headed back uh, Saturday night. So, But we're still going to be on schedule, so nothing will change. I appreciate the support and the the kind words that some of you have sent me. Make sure you're following me on Twitter and Instagram at Late Kick Josh. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Five-star reviews. We did indeed go over 1,600. So 2,000 is obviously our next goal. The numbers are skyrocketing. It is because of you guys. Thank you so much. Until next time, for Producer Jordan, I'm Josh Bate. Have a great rest of your day, and God bless. God bless.